Good morning. Our scripture passage today is Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Jesus answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Jesus got out, Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm going to take a moment of pastoral privilege and uh, wish Miss Shirley Morrow a special happy birthday today. Very, very thankful for you, Miss Shirley. Also, I want to pray, and I want to pray uh, for one of our uh, partner churches as uh, members of Southside Know. We are part of the Pillar Network, which is a group, a small group of like-minded Baptist churches. And by like-minded, I primarily mean churches that are committed to expositional preaching, elder leadership, meaningful membership, and biblical church discipline. And one of those uh, pretty strategic church partner is covenant, covenanting together today as a church in Richmond. And so I want to pray for them, among other things. So would you join me? Father, we do come together today as sinners, as we just sang, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, thirsty, weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall, and this makes us so incredibly thankful for the ready and warm welcome of Jesus Christ. He stands ready to save us. He will embrace us. Your free bounty glorify. Father, we are so thankful and excited for this Foster 325 ministry, and we pray that it would uh, take fire in this city. There are so many, so, so many needy children in this city, and there are so many people who claim your name. And so we pray that through this initiative, you would provide and you would raise up many children that would be discipled and loved and cared for and ultimately launched for your kingdom. So I pray that in the city, also pray it for Southside, that we would come strong with this ministry. Thank you for 
Aaron and her leadership. Thank you for Melissa and her leadership. And we just ask for your blessing even starting today. Father, we do pray for River City Church as they launch in Richmond, Virginia this morning. We pray for your special hand of blessing. Would your spirit be at work there? Would it be a very sweet and rich time of launching out? And we pray for many people to be saved. We pray for an evangelistic zeal among the core team. And we pray that many would be converted. And we just ask for your blessing. We pray for Matt and Megan Smethurst as they lead and as church planting can be strenuous on so many levels. We pray for their ministry. We pray for their marriage. Keep Christ central. We pray for their children. We want to see a strong gospel presence there. And we ask for your blessing upon it. Thank you for the opportunity to have some small part in supporting that work. I pray for Libby Landon, missionary partner of ours that is out in Budapest now, and we pray for her ministry. We're thankful that it's getting started, that she's able to do so much, even in English. Pray especially for two gals, non-Christian gals she's already been able to meet with on a regular basis. We pray that you would grab their hearts, pray that you would grant them faith and repentance, and she would be able to see them come to faith. We pray for this before you are one class and the couples that will consist of it. We pray that you would use this class and the relationships built there to build strong marriages that will last. Marriages that will finish well. And not only finish well, but will flourish as they go. Pray for Mayor Williams that you would strengthen his faith. Would you help him? Would you lead him? Would you cause him to lead from Christian principles? God, as we turn to your word, would you increase our esteem for your son? We pray this in his name. Amen. I wonder if you ever zoom out. I hope you do. Zoom out, sit back, put the phone away, and just reflect on things. And one of the things that I wonder if you ever reflect on is how is it that the Christian faith has spread all over the world. I mean, we talked about recently, went from 12 dudes to 2.3 billion people today. How? How has it endured? Although being wanting to be snuffed out again and again and again, how has it grown and endured? Well, the simple answer is because it's true. It's because Jesus Christ is who he said he is. The central claim of the Christian faith is that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. The central claim of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is God. It's what the church has always believed. Let me read from the Nicene Creed in the fourth century. The church came together and confessed this, and we we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. Jesus Christ is God. If that's true, and it is true, it should change everything about us, everything about everyone in this room. And so let's look this morning, if you're a guest, we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, it's page 769 if you're using one of the Bibles there in our chairs, and let's see how the deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is divine, fully God, helps us speak the truth and why and how we should therefore look to him. Matthew chapter 14. We're actually going to tackle the whole chapter, I thought that might be a bit much for Elise to read. 
The goal is to finish Matthew about this time next year. First, boldly speak the truth, Matthew chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So here's Herod. This is Herod Antipas. He's one of the three sons of Herod the Great, the Tetrarch of Galilee. And he'd heard about Jesus and about this gaining popularity, and he says, this must be John the Baptist. Of course, by this time, as we're about to learn, John the Baptist was dead. We'll learn how and why here in a moment, but for now, Herod thinks this must be John. He's back. He's being haunted by John the Baptist. Your sin will find you out. As the prophet Jeremiah says, your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. And so he's worried. John's back. And then Matthew gives us some fairly long background here in these next verses. Look at Matthew 14, verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So a little background here. Herod had divorced his first wife, who, by the way, was a daughter of a guy named Eretus, the Nabataean king of Petra. That would end up causing Herod to lose in a ruinous war later. But he was already being dismissed by the Jewish people. The Jewish people didn't take him seriously. They didn't look to him as their king. And this just showed his non-Jewishness all the more. His father was an Idumean. His mother was a Samaritan. And here he's acting like non-Jews. He's acting like pagans, actually. And Herodias, his current wife, had divorced Philip to marry Herod. This is all clearly contrary to God's law in multiple ways. Leviticus explicitly forbids a man from taking his brother's wife. And so here you have Herodias an adulterous woman. You have Herod, a capricious tyrant, clearly not the true Jewish king. And John knew it, and John wasn't afraid to say so. He had been telling them that it was unlawful. The idea here is John kept on and on, letting them know that they were in sin publicly. And so Herod wants him dead. It's a convenient thing to stop the conviction, but he was afraid to do so. Fast forward now to one of Herod's debauched birthday parties. He would often have these. He was known for these extravagant parties. He wanted to be known as the host with the most. And his wife, Herodias, has his daughter, probably from Philip, come and dance. And she was almost certainly a teenager. And the dance was almost certainly sexually suggestive. The Jewish historian Josephus tells, her, tells us her name was Salome. And Herod likes her. And so he makes this foolish vow, as fools do. And Herodias 
has her ask for John's head on a platter. Now Herod's stuck. Don't really want to do that, but also need to save face with my guests. And so he orders the beheading of John the Baptist. Remember how John was described in Matthew 11, verse 11. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. The greatest and the last prophet dies a violent death. But remember what Jesus had warned in the next chapter before that, chapter 10. He said, persecution is going to come. Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. In this little flashback Matthew gives us here, we see the bold courage of John, don't we? In the jellyfish spine of Herod. Herod's scared. Herod's scared that John might be back. And then he's scared of the people. And then he makes this unwise promise to this little girl that he lusts after. And then he's scared of his guest. If he doesn't follow through, Herod was wicked and weak. John, on the other hand, is righteous. Listen to how Mark describes it, the Gospel of Mark's account. As when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he'd married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Friends, often godliness goes unrewarded in this life. Did for John. That's how it is sometimes. We've got to remind ourselves of that. For us, the best is yet to come, always. In a really popular book called Your Best Life Now, you know that your best life now is only true for people who are going to hell. Our best life is later. This life is the only hell we will experience. Our light and momentary affliction is but for a moment, but it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. John received no earthly reward. He was righteous, but he was also bold and courageous. Proverbs 28, 1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. John speaks truth to power. He doesn't care who his audience is. He cares about the law of God. Therefore, he cares about God. And so he's unafraid of even calling the king to account when the king has betrayed the constitution of the king of kings. And again, this language is that he just kept on telling Herod that it was sinful to marry Herod Ice. She had divorced Philip to marry him, and John cared about God. Therefore, God, John had a high view of marriage and kept on telling them, and apparently others, that they needed to repent. John wasn't afraid to open his mouth, and man, we can learn something from John today. Life is short. Eternity is long. We need to tell the truth. It really is the most loving thing we can do to tell the truth. And if people like us and churches like this aren't willing to tell the truth, who will? We've got to open our mouths. Yes, we have a winsome witness with our lives, but we've got to do more than that, right? I remember hearing the story of a, a, a guy that was converted in Seattle. So he's converted 
And he's very nervous about going to talk to his boss about his, his newfound faith, but he wants to tell his boss about Jesus, and he finally musters up the courage, and so he goes to his boss and says, listen, I'm going to tell you something that happened to me. My life has changed. I became a Christian this weekend. And the boss is like, awesome, I've been praying for that. I'm so glad I'm a Christian too. And this new convert is partly relieved, but partly confused. Like, wait a minute, you're a Christian? You're one of the reasons I've not become a Christian. Not because you don't live a good life, but because you live such a good life. Here I am thinking, my boss lives an exemplary and happy life without Jesus, so I must be able to do the same. Meanwhile, this whole time, you've been a Christian. We've got to open our mouths. Living exemplary lives is not enough. So we need to be bold. Like John, you know, some of us, don't speak the truth about God's word because we're worried about losing our popularity. Perhaps losing a friend. Of course, if we lose a friend over telling the truth, they probably weren't a friend. It was losing an acquaintance. Maybe even losing a job. John the Baptist was willing to lose his head. Why? Because John didn't care about John. Look back at Matthew chapter three, verse 11. What did John say? He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. John said, he must increase, I must decrease. When we don't really care about ourselves, but we care about the glory of Jesus, we'll speak the truth boldly like John. Second, we need to look to Jesus who provides what we need. Look at John, I mean, Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And when they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So in the narrative now, we move from Herod's lavish feast to a simpler menu, five loaves and bread, five loaves of bread and two fish, Hebrew Happy Meal. (laughs) And this is important to the gospel writers, the feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle recorded in all four gospels. So notice after John, Jesus hears about John, he withdraws. Yet more persecution. Remember how chapter 13 ended. Jesus is rejected in his own hometown by his own people. And yet now he have John the Baptist beheaded, and so he withdraws. But a great crowd, and Jesus can't help but have compassion 
on them, compassio. He suffers with them. He cares about them. He cares about their needs, even their hunger. The disciples don't care so much. Send them to the grocery store. And Jesus says, I got this. Disciples look at their little Hebrew happy meal and look at Jesus like they're crazy, and Jesus has it all under control. He orders them to sit down, make a picnic, and he takes on the role of the head of the family, and he gives thanks to God, and he breaks the bread, and he tells his disciples to start passing out the food. Wouldn't you love to be there? You're just passing, and it just, just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And all ate and were satisfied. They ate as much as they wanted. 5,000 men, not including the women and children. You know what the, the average family, the average number of kids per household in the Bible is? 6.1. Sometimes people look at me like, I've got a large family. We've got five kids. I'm like, man, we're below average. <laughs> 5,000 men, average of six kids. Plus, this is a lot of people. And not, not only were they all satisfied, they had leftovers. 12 baskets full. And this word for basket, don't think like the little DQ steak finger basket. The word for basket is a large basket that would hold much more than five loaves of bread and two fish. 12 baskets left over. Jesus just puts a cherry on top to strengthen the faith of his 12 disciples. And Jesus has the power and the compassion to provide what we need. He calls into being that which did not exist previously. He has our back. Look to Christ to provide what we need. Third, look to Christ because he's God incarnate. Look again at chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Notice the model of Jesus. There's much to be done. There's much ministry to be done, but he prioritized private prayer. He gets away. He spends some time alone with his father. If Jesus needed time alone with the father, friends, we do as well. If you don't have that, find a plan, find a place, and commit to it every single day. Verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus is praying for a very long time and his ride leaves without him due to the winds. Doesn't matter though, he just walks out to them. Contrary to liberal Christian scholarship, Jesus was not walking on a reef, wasn't walking on a sandbar. The boat goes out. These are fishermen. They know the lake. We're going to see in a minute, Peter's going to sink in the water and even Peter couldn't manage to sink on a reef. <laughs> Jesus walks on water and they think, He's a ghost, and so they're scared to death. It's three in the morning, and Jesus says, take heart. It's I. Don't be afraid. Take courage. It's me. You have nothing to worry about. Verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. 
So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So Peter gets excited, speaks before he thinks, as Peter is prone to do. Prove it, Jesus, let me walk out. And so Jesus just says, come, and he comes. Incredible, not only can the Son of God walk on water, he can tell other people to do it. I wonder, do we get a little glimpse of what the new earth will be like here? Will we be able to walk on water? How cool would that be, like those little Jesus lizards? The closest I've ever come was a barefoot water skiing. In fact, the Frasers taught me to barefoot water ski. Amazing. I mean, you're on the water with nothing but your feet going 40 miles an hour. Didn't go well for me. I uh, (laughs) curled a toe. That's all you got to do. Like curl your pinky toe and you get a lake water enema. (laughs) One time. (laughs) But Peter just strolls, walks and begins. But what does he do? He takes his eyes off Jesus. He notices the storm. He notices the circumstances. And he becomes afraid and he starts to sink. And I love Jesus' response here. He just grabs him. We can't, we can't read the tone, but you know, I don't think it was a, a rebuke. I think it sounded like this. Peter, where is your faith? Peter, don't you know who I am? Why did you doubt? Jesus is so merciful to weak believers. You remember his invitation in Matthew chapter 11? Flip back a couple pages to verse 28. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Love this invitation that we've sung this morning. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus could have let Peter sink, but a really easy place to teach him a lesson, right? We do that, Alicia and I do that quite a bit. We'll just let something play itself out with our kids. Natural consequences. Jesus is more merciful. The steadfast love of the Lord holds him up. And Jesus gets in the boat and the winds cease. Look at verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So Jesus heals many more after they implore him. Notice their faith. Can we just touch the edge of your robe? And it's done. And again, in these miracles that we've seen, really from Matthew 8 and following, Jesus is giving us a taste of what the kingdom will be like in its fullness. Remember, Jesus brings the kingdom in his first coming, but it won't be fully consummated till his second coming. And so here in this ministry in the first century, we're getting just a preview. We're getting a taste of what life will be like on the new creation when the the kingdom fully 
dawns. Preview of the world to come. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do and we will. Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? It is. And here in the ministry of Jesus, we see this again and again, this taste of the new creation where the deaf are going to hear, the blind will see, the lame will leap, the mute will sing, the lamb will lay with a lion. There will be no sickness, no disease, no flu, no COVID, no tears, no curse, no death. Well, how should we respond to these verses? I think at least two ways. Worship and look to him. First, Worship is the really only right response. Is he worthy? He is. And that's how they respond, right? Look at verse 33. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. He's the son of God, therefore, he is worthy of worship. He is God. Only God can do these sorts of things. Only God can feed some 20 or 30,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Only God can walk on the water, and they would have known this. Listen to just a couple passages that describe God. Job 9.8, God is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Psalm 77.19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God alone can tread the waters with his feet. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who's sovereign over all things, sovereign over nature. The rocky waves become solid rock under the feet of the sun. We saw even the winds and waves obey him. Storms become his servants. Listen to the way the apostle Paul describes this son in Colossians chapter one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The only reasonable response to this man is worship because he is the God-man. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. I would pose to you this morning what has been known as the trilemma. It was first articulated by a Scottish preacher named John Duncan and then popularized by C.S. Lewis. John Duncan put it this way, writing in 1860, Christ is either, Christ either, excuse me, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded and self-deceived or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. In 1942, C.S. Lewis put it like this. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth reflecting on. 
Lewis, speaking about Jesus, says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That's the trilemma. For you kids, as you've read or will read The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, there's a form of it that appears. Do you remember when Edmund goes with Lucy and then he lies and says he was just pretending to go along with Lucy? So they have to go and consult the professor. Here's what he says. Why don't they teach logic at these schools anymore? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies or she is mad or she's telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies and it's obvious she's not mad for the moment then and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Well, if you're not a Christian, I would just ask you the question, which is it? You have three options. What will you do with Jesus? Will you dismiss him as a lunatic? Will you write him off as a liar? Or will you submit to him as Lord? All people must reckon with who Jesus Christ is. The Bible tells us all people will reckon with who Jesus Christ is. Philippians chapter two says that every single tongue will confess. Every single knee will bow before the Lordship of Christ. The question is, will you do it now in glad submission or will you do it then in dreadful judgments? He is God. He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. Worship him. Second, if you are a believer, continue to worship him and look to him. Keep your eyes on him. Stay focused on him and his word and his body. Look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Make him your north star. The water may seem deep, but you're only gonna sink when you take your eyes off him. Focus on your trial. Don't fret over threatening circumstances, but cast your burdens on him. Why? For he cares for you. He has the power and he has the compassion. Keep your eyes on Jesus. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let's pray together.
Father, how kind you are. Not to leave us in the dark, but to enter in through the person of Jesus Christ. One who has all power and all authority, yet mixed, uniquely mixed with compassion and humility and gentleness. And that's just what we need as needy sinners. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you. May our lives be centered on Jesus Christ, what we were created for. May our song be loud and may our lives be clear that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. We prayed in his name, amen.